Yeah, we were up at Red River together earlier this week, John Scott and I, a little camping trip. Actually, we were in a nice little condo up there, but at the Red River Family Encampment, high of 77 degrees on Monday. Yeah, I got down to 39 that night, had my window open, had lots of blankets on, it was really nice. But here we are, back in Texas, the hot house. Uh, Judges chapter 3 will be there tonight, and we are continuing our series. I promise I will not put the same graphic up every week during this series. I think this is the third week in a row, but I think I won't need to. I think you're starting to see this is a record that's broken. You're going to have the same thing, er, 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 over and over, various versions of the same story. So let's put the judges cycle up. Sin, idolatry, these are God's people that are moving outside of his will, outside of his presence. They are choosing other gods. They are choosing practices that are abhorrent to God. And uh, then uh, God is basically, okay, you want to choose to live away from me? You want to choose to go your own way? So God says, okay, have it your way. And they will bloody their, their nose and fall down and, and uh, be brought under an oppressive hand of the Moabites. The Arameans of different, the Midianites of different uh, peoples who will uh, kind of take over and oppress them. And then they feel, oh boy, we turned our back on God. This is why we're suffering. And so they will throw themselves in the presence of God. They will cry out and God will hear the cries of his people and he will send them a savior, uh, a judge, a rescuer. And this just cycles through. And you will see it tonight in the story that we are going to read in a couple of minutes. But it just happens over and over. And as I noted, uh, the situation kind of gets progressively worse as the book goes along. And the saviors, the rescuers, get progressively more flawed as the book goes on. All right? Um, So here is our text tonight. Uh, We're going to talk about a South Pod Savior, a left-handed rescuer tonight. In Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 12, I told the church this morning, this was one of my top three Bible stories when I was a junior high boy. You'll probably see why as we work through some of the details of the story tonight. Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Once again, so cycle, cycle. Once again, here we go again. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab, other side of the Jordan, King Eglon of Moab, control over Israel because of evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites, the Amalekites as allies, and then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. The Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again, cycle, again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger, or a short about a foot long, strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. 
After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. He went to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet, sent them all out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. That's one way to put it. I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled the dagger strapped to his right thigh, plunged it into the king's belly. Junior high boys love this part. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared. Think Jabba the Hutt. The handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull the dagger out, and the king's bowels emptied. That's what the Hebrew actually says. NIV and some other English versions clean that up a bit. But the English Standard Version says his dung came out. This says his bowels emptied. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine, or some versions say out the patio. After Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room, so they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Sarah. When he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms. And then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him, and the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. Don't have a lot of details about this man, Ehud. The Bible is going to mention the most significant or noteworthy detail, which is he was left-handed. We're also told that this particular left-handedness played a role in the cloak and dagger, literal cloak and dagger diplomacy that will take place later. I will go a little beyond beyond, uh, what the English text says. The Hebrew hints strongly that he had a disability, that his right hand was a non-working hand. Um, Possibly that right hand had been injured in battle, possibly had been ravaged by illness, uh, but likely non-functional. And there are several reasons for that. First of all, the Hebrew text indicates there was a deficiency there. There's a word in verse 15, iter, which means disabled, impeded, but also in ancient Hebrew society and basically any ancient society, if you could possibly use your right hand, you would because it was considered a sign of weakness to be left-handed or to use your left hand. No offense, everybody who is left-handed, but that's the way it was back then. 
And even so, even if he hadn't been disabled in his right hand, let's say I'm wrong about this, uh, and despite the indications from the text uh, in the Hebrew that his right hand was fine, even if that was the case, being left-handed itself was a mark of weakness. You probably remember somewhere, or at least hearing, if not reading, hearing the phrase, the right hand of God, used a lot. Uh, uh, in the Old Testament, and not just used of God, but used of other people, the right hand is a symbol of strength, a symbol of competency. Often it's the right hand of the Lord that is spoken of when the Bible is elevating God and talking about His supremacy and His power. Like, for example, here we go, Psalm 118, verses 15 and 16 Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. Now let me ask you this. Do you believe the God of the universe is more right-handed than left-handed? I don't think so. I mean, but I think that is a way of speaking to he is supreme. He is powerful. God gets things done. Anyway, in our day and time, it's no big deal to be left-handed. I think there are probably still some extra challenges for those of you who are left-handed, finding a pair of scissors that works for you or something. Um, you could have a good career as a, as a pitcher in baseball if you're left-handed. Um, but in these days, you were seen as somehow less capable, inferior, weaker, because of your left-handedness. And in this case, I think there was more than just he's left-handed. I think that right hand didn't work. I think it was deficient or defective. So his world was one where even if his right hand worked fine, this was a sign of, of weakness. Uh, and I think it's more than a social stigma. I think it was an actual genuine disability in the text. Um, now, why would this be highlighted in the story? Who cares? He's right-handed, he's left-handed. Why even point that out? Well, the broader story of Scripture is a story, and we know this, where over and over and over, God chooses to use the unlikely woman, the unlikely man, to do amazing things. God chooses someone who people would not choose to make a point. It's by my power. It's not by his or her power. It's by my power that this amazing thing is happening. And so that's what he does. He loves using people with obvious limitations. He always has. Moses, I mean, we could, we could go all day on this, right? From, from Joseph to, I mean, who was, anyway, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the second born, but he became the, anyway. But Moses, a fugitive of justice, a murderer escaping Egypt. You can argue whether what he did was good or not when he killed the taskmaster, but he was a fugitive of justice. And then when God calls him right at the burning bush, uh, they have this entire conversation where, Joseph, uh, where, where Moses is pointing out all of his deficiencies. You got the wrong guy, God. My brother Aaron, much more capable. He's actually a gifted speaker. I kind of stumble over my words. And he's like, no, I want you. You're, you're the one. I'm, God loves to use people with, with weaknesses. Paul, of course, in the New Testament, I think we think 
who did more for the gospel uh, in the New Testament, which is probably not a real productive debate to have, but Paul certainly would number among those who did more to take the gospel around the world, and he had a, what, he had a thorn in the flesh. Again, uh, scholars love to talk about what was that. Likely, we don't know, but likely some sort of chronic illness or some sort of physical malady that Paul struggled with, a thorn in the flesh. Something that some people say that he stuttered. Some people say that, you know, I don't know. But he was someone that you would look at and say, really? God? That guy? That guy? And so it tells us once again, the text, as we get to this rescuer, uh, and why Israel needed a rescuer to start with, it tells us in the text, once again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. This time doesn't even get into the, the nitty-gritty of what exactly Israel was doing. Just once again, there they go again. So the cycle is repeating itself. And I think we can infer from this, as in the case of Othniel, that first judge that we talked about last week, probably the same, since it's saying once again, probably the same things were happening again, which is Israel has kind of turned her back on God and has begun pursuing the Baals and the Asherahs, the regional gods that were being worshipped there, and was involved in all sorts of immoral practices that would be connected with the worships, uh, the worship of those, uh, the cultic practices of those pagan gods. They were blending. We saw this last week, probably giving their sons to be married to the pagan girls and giving their daughters to be married to the pagan boys and just mixing their culture all up. And as we talked about last week, unlikely that they actually said, we categorically no longer believe in Yahweh. That probably wasn't happening. I mean, that wasn't happening. We know that. They were just mixing in some extra stuff. You know, we'll do Yahweh, but we'll do these other gods as well. And throughout, again, you get to themes of Scripture throughout the, the New Testament and the Old Testament. One of the themes is God loves people and honors their choices. Part of somebody, of loving someone, caring for someone, is, is ultimately honoring their choice. Respecting their choices, even when their choices are not good choices. In this case, the choice to worship other gods. The choice to get involved in those uh, pagan practices and, and, and follow these powerless gods who prove once again that they are unable to protect Israel from these foreign powers, these foreign kings like Eglon. And so they're subject to his rule. They're paying tribute uh, every so often, 18 years here, so once, twice a year. I don't know what the payment schedule was, but they're paying protection money Eglon. It's a heavy burden. And if you pay attention to the biblical text, and, and I, I actually like the New Living Translation here because it just gives it to us, but if you have an NIV, it will just say that Eglon successfully conquered the city of Palms, and you're kind of like, what is the city of Palm? Palm Springs? Yeah, I mean, what, what are we talking about here? And what we know is this is, the, this is Jericho. This is Jericho. This is embarrassing. I mean, they cross the Jordan. God opens the waters way back when, at the beginning of the book of Joshua. And the first victory they experienced, was, which is 100% God, all they do is walk circles around Jericho. The first victory is that city. 
God delivers this important city. Now we read, it's, it, it's not theirs anymore. Eglon's taken it. Israel no longer controls Jericho. So putting two and two together, it's clear, it should be clear to any Israelite that God is no longer protecting them. Or I think a, a more correct way to say that is they have moved out from under God's protection. And so these pagan deities will continue to plague Israel as they rival God for the hearts of the people. And it's worth, tonight, we're going to do a little bit of a stepping over, and I think it's worth, since since these are going to show up time and time again in the book of Judges, let's talk about the local gods uh, in the ancient Near East, especially in this part of the world, what we think of as kind of modern-day Israel, maybe the other side of the Jordan as well. So the earliest god that was worshipped in the ancient Near East is a god named El, E-L. It's just the generic name for God, for any God, like the dictionary God, G-O-D, okay? Um, Now, he was the creator God, they believed, in this part of the world. His female counterpart was a fertility goddess named Asherah, right? Uh, And so according to legends, El and Asherah hung out together, gave birth, uh, she, Asherah, to many other lesser gods, right? One of these gods was a powerful god among these lesser gods, was a more powerful god named Baal. Okay? Now, sometimes reading the Bible or reading even outside sources, um, you kind of get confused. Is Baal a god or is Baal like a family of gods? Um, because sometimes it looks like there's one Baal and sometimes it looks like there's a bunch of different Baals going around. Uh, likely there was one Baal who manifested in different uh, versions in different geographical locations and time periods, right? Um, So as the century passed, the worship of El was gradually, uh, it faded and it was supplanted by the worship of Baal and Asherah, right? So Baal, it was believed, won his dominance by defeating lesser gods. Um, Gods like the storm god, the sea god, the god of death. Ancient Hebrews, you may have heard this before, they regarded the sea as a place, the sea was evil. Which, when you read a book like Jonah, it starts making more sense. Uh, Jonah is swallowed up in the sea. The sea was a place of chaos. It was a place of evil. And so the promise to, to the Hebrews, the promise that Baal could control the sea, and that Baal uh, could also promise his worshipers control of the weather, i.e. good farming conditions, abundant harvests. That was attractive. God was making some attractive promises for them. And so we've got some pics tonight, some pictures of some images of Baal that archaeologists have uncovered, and I'll just talk about those for a moment or two, um, you might just notice back to this, we're talking about in the, in the ancient world how right hand is good, left hand is weak. Notice how Baal's right hand is lifted. Sometimes both of his hands 
are lifted uh, in archaeological finds, but most often he's lifting. Sometimes he'll be holding a lightning bolt showing his dominance over weather, uh, but generally right hand is lifted, sign of power. Um, now, ancient peoples tended to regard their gods as having regional powers, kind of territorial gods, if you will. So you might be thinking, why would Israel worship the Baals? I mean, they knew Yahweh. Yahweh had delivered them from Egypt. They'd, they'd experienced all miracles. Yeah. But maybe thinking, well, you know, here we are in the land of Canaan, so perhaps we should also adopt some worship of these gods who perhaps have extra power and dominion. Um, I'm thinking of jurisdiction, perhaps would be the right word, in this part of the world. So that might be a reason. Hey, Yahweh is our God, but you know these other peoples are worshiping some of these gods, and they say that these gods answer their prayers here in this place, so let's go ahead and mix some of that in. Uh, again, they would have been then drawn into some of the cultic practices, some of the sinful practices associated with the worship of these gods, and, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, so Baal is portrayed often as a man, uh, and sometimes he'll have the head of a, uh, or he'll have the horns of a bull. Um, his right hand, sometimes both hands are raised. Um, okay, so also he's been portrayed sometimes as being seated on a throne as if he is, Baal is kind of the ruler or the king of the gods. Now Asherah, the, the female god here, Asherah was the fertility goddess. Um, the Bible never like describes her, but archaeologists again have, have unearthed some images, um, some reliefs with Asherah on them, uh, and depictions of her. So she is usually shown as nude. She is usually kind of presenting her breasts. Um, sometimes she is pregnant, again, fertility goddess here. Um, and she is, what she is offering to her worship is hers, her worshipers is fertility and fruitfulness. So she's not just connected to childbirth, but also to good harvests, right? Um, in the Bible, we most often find um, places of Asherah are located near trees. By the way, if you've traveled to Israel before, you know that large trees aren't just everywhere. So that would be a place of worship. There's a big tree over there. Uh, and where there wasn't a big tree, they would make a, a large pole, which I won't go into a lot of detail here, but phallic symbols. That's what we're talking about here with this fertility goddess. You've got these phallic symbols. Um, so how, this is the, the more interesting question, how were these gods worshipped? How did it work when you went to church service at the Temple of Baal or the Temple of Asherah? Um, there's evidence um, of, of animal sacrifice, which the Israelites would have been familiar with, with sheep and bulls, also with Baal, the sacrifice of pigs, which would have been forbidden um, in, in their covenant with God. Um, in times of crisis, we know in the Bible and outside of the Bible that in times of crisis, Baal worshipers would sacrifice children. You know, got to get, got to get our God's attention. So they might sacrifice infants or, or their children um, to get the God's attention. And of course, the Bible repeatedly condemns child sacrifice. And then Asherah, the fertility goddess, her worship was a little bit different. 
Uh, it involved ritual sex acts. Um, sometimes a male member of the community would represent Baal and a priestess from the local Baal uh, Asherah worship center would represent Asherah, or if there wasn't a priestess, just some woman from the community uh, would stand in. And so anyway, Israel, obviously joining in with these local cultic practices, um, was completely turning away from Yahweh, completely turning away from the holiness that he had called them to, uh, including a perversion of his gift of sexuality. Remember, our God came up with this gift to be enjoyed in the sanctity of marriage. Well, they were taking it and just perverting it all sorts of ways with the worship of Asherah and Baal. So anyway, back to our text in Judges chapter 3. Fascinating story, right? We've got Israel under this yoke of taxation to Eglon. Israel has lost her pride, has lost her sense of of identity. Uh, Israel has lost her property, city of Palms, Jericho, uh, to this foreign power. And so eventually she is, she's just crushed under this power and miserable, and the people are crying out to God. He hears them. He sees they're turning back to him, and he sends a judge. A savior, a rescuer. This time, it is this left-handed savior, Ehud. Ehud, with some men carrying money, carrying tribute, they head off to make their regular visit to Eglon. They drop off the riches for his enjoyments and the, consequently the impoverishment of their people, the tribes of Israel. They head back toward Israel, and that's when Ehud says, Hey, guys, you keep going? I, I got to go back. I have a special uh, secret message that I need to deliver to this foreign king. And so the South Pod Savior, uh, we're told in the story, and again, this depends, dagger, sword, depends on what version you're reading. He has some sort of custom-made double-edged sword. Short sword probably is what I would call it. And it is strapped underneath, so it's hidden underneath um, not getting through airport security with this, but probably getting through Eglon's security in Moab. He clears out uh, the king. Eglon clears out his protection. His servants asks them to leave the room. Um, why would he do that? What a crazy man. Why? I, this guy, this disabled, left-handed Israelite, no threat whatsoever. Eglon obviously feels completely safe with his fellow. And by the way, he's just brought him a ton of money. So he feels like they're okay. Um, he's all right being alone with this guy. So once alone, we know the story, Ehud plunges this sword, this dagger, into the obese king. And it is swallowed up by this guy's fat. And uh, he dies. And then, like I said... Most of your English translations try to make it more polite, and that's okay, I guess. Uh, but they will just talk about, you know, he dies. Um, the English Standard Version, which is very good, and here the New Living Version will point out um, that it, he relieved himself. Um, the ESV says uh, when he was stabbed, 
quote, the dung came out. And by the way, I don't know how important that detail is. For me as a junior high boy, I found that interesting. Um, but it, it does explain some of what happened later. Why, the, why would his people not go in the room? Why did they leave him alone in there for so long? They thought he was relieved. Why would they think he was relieving himself? Well, have you ever smelled a porta potty? That's kind of what it smelled like. They're like, okay, King is doing his business in there. Let's leave him alone. But after a, an awkwardly long amount of time, I don't know, 45 minutes, hour and a half, they're like, hey, are you okay? And finally they track down a key and they go in to check on him. And he is dead. And this visitor, Ehud, is nowhere to be found. And returning home, Ehud returning home, sounds the war alarm and... Uh, a band of Israelites, we're not told exactly how many, but they're filled with, they're emboldened, they're filled with courage, and they begin to attack Moab. They kind of block some of the retreat lines for Moab, and they begin attacking, and we're told that 10,000 uh, Moabite soldiers are killed. And by the end of the story in chapter 3, Israel, they have been the vassal state, the servant state to Moab. Now the roles are completely reversed. And Moab has become a, a lesser, a servant state to Israel. And they have peace for eight, eight decades. Not bad. So there are folks that think this whole story is a little bit distasteful, notwithstanding some of those details I shared with you. But, I mean, it's more like how could God use an assassin? It's basically what Ehud is. And an assassin who uses trickery and deceit in order to do his job. How could God do that? How does that work? And the truth is, prior to the killing of Eglon, no one in the nation of Israel would have followed this guy, this judge, this leader. No one would have followed Ehud. He's not a candidate you would have voted for running for local election or national election. He wasn't a guy that you would pick as a military leader. Um, he would have been seen as unfit, this left-handed man, with probably a physical defect in his right hand, unfit. Unfit to be a soldier, much less the commander of the armies of Israel. This guy? No. More subtle still is this persistent truth throughout history of how God prefers to work through, maybe you could call it the underdog, the misfit, the outsider, the weakling, and do things that people would never have predicted. And so in this story, God sets his people free, gives them victory over their enemies, and uses this unexpected leader and some unexpected means. And I would share this. If I were saying, what's, what's an important like salient point that, that we could grab onto here? I would put it this way. I think there's a reminder here. God does not choose the able. He enables the chosen. Amen? That's how he works. Go through the Bible. 
God does not choose the swiftest or the strongest or the brightest. He tends to choose someone who is simply available to him. And he receives all of the glory. I would go further and I would say, I I think this story, again, you have to make this, this leap with me that Ehud was in fact handicapped or disabled. Could be wrong about that. But if you make that leap with me, and I think it's there, I think the text presents it, I would go further and I would say, I think this speaks to the way that God's will can be done in uniquely powerful ways through people whose society might reject or marginalize or classify as disabled, unusable. Someone who I've been following, I've never met her. I would love to meet her someday. I've seen her on video. I've read her books. I've read stories about her. Joni Erickson Tata. As a young girl, very athletic, competitive swimmer, um, dove into water one time. It was at the ocean. Dove in much shallower than she thought. Impacted her head and neck, paralyzed um, since then, and now she's, uh, I don't know how old she is, I'd probably say 60. Um, but anyway, Joni Erickson, she's one of these examples of these people who God still uses to do amazing things. And one of her many stories involves, um, she was one of those that went in after the Oklahoma City bombing to kind of help counsel people, to listen and, and, to, and to encourage people. She's quadriplegic, and so she rolled in there, and she, she writes this. She says, upon arrival, I had to go to the American Red Cross Center to be cleared and credentialed. And I will never forget feeling into that low, flat, red brick building. There were people setting up chairs and tables, stacking forms, putting out donuts and coffee, And across the large room was a tall, officious-looking woman in a white lab coat. When she saw me wheel through the door, she quickly turned around with her clipboard, put down her glasses, and said, Oh my, we are glad to see you. Sparked my curiosity. I said, Why? She responded, When people up to you in your wheelchair and see you handle your personal crisis and with that smile of yours it speaks I might switch to that yeah I'll go handheld that's I'll start where I left off please so <laughs> the lady said Oh my, we're so glad to see you. And she, her curiosity sparked. She said, why? And the lady responded to her, when people walk up to you in your wheelchair and see you handle your personal crisis with that smile of yours, it speaks volumes to them. It assures them that they can handle their crisis too. We need people like you in here. Please 
Help us go out, I love this, and find more individuals like you who can assist us. And then Joni shares, immediately, I got this picture in my mind. Wouldn't it be great on any given Sunday morning to see people with white canes and wheelchairs and walkers come through the doors of our sanctuaries. And wouldn't it be something if we all turned around in our seats, in our congregations, and exclaimed, oh my, are we glad to see you here. We need people like you here in our church. Wouldn't that be something? The woman in the American Red Cross white lab coat had caught the drift of 1 Corinthians 12, 22 to 23, where Paul writes, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we treat them with special honor. So this story in Judges 3, the story of Ehud, I think it reminds us that the primary, initial qualification for being used by God is being available to God. Here am I, Lord. Send me. And finally, can't help myself, the story of the unlikely Savior. It points to Jesus. Right? Isaiah 53, we've got this amazing prophecy before Jesus ever shows up. Amazing prophecy hinting at the unique kind of Messiah God is going to send. Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. He grew up before them like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty. To attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. That's a description of Jesus several centuries before Bethlehem and his birth. And it turns out this unremarkable looking person... (laughs) 
He's the one who was arrested, was tried, was put to death. And it turns out he was the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's almighty God. He turned himself over, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, surrendered himself to be mocked and humiliated and murdered so that he could save us and deliver us from this oppressive power, sin, and death, and deliver us to his eternal kingdom. And throughout the Bible, really, places like Judges chapter 3, God (laughs) provides these breadcrumbs. God provides these hints that salvation is not going to come in the ways people expected. Isaiah chapter 53. uh, Salvation is not going to come through a Hollywood hero, through a Hebrew version of Rambo. No. What the world despises, what the world holds in low esteem, what the world considers weakness... God's going to choose that and reveal his strength and reveal his love. What the world considers foolishness, Paul will say to the Corinthians, God will use to save humanity. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. So Jesus is the one who comes and rescues us. He is the one who proves himself worthy of our love and our worship. Worthy to be called our Lord. Let's pray together and we'll sing here in just a bit. God, I love the story of Ehud. I love the story of how you choose unlikely people to do remarkable things because they make themselves available to you. Challenge us. Inspire us. Call us to never discount ourselves as being the kind of people you can use to do remarkable things. You've been using people like us since the beginning, basically. And thank you for pointing toward Jesus in this story. Of one who, in many respects, was unremarkable. No natural beauty, no aura of majesty that you would spot in a crowd. But yet in that person, we find you. We find you.
and we just want to worship you and surrender our lives to you. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship together.